You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy! Dr. Amit Goswami has made quantum physics understandable over the past few decades, showing a reader of his books or listener to his talks or viewers of What the Bleep Do You Know? that consciousness is part of the equation when talking about the interface between what is seen and unseen. So, too, in his most recent Hampton Roads 2008 release, God is Not Dead, What Quantum Physics Tells Us About Our Origins and How We Should Live, is making clear from the start that his gift is being able to see how we combine our search for meaning, ethics, sustainability, all that which is good about humanity, and our spiritual search for purpose. Yet there's another element so many moderners are quick to divorce, sometimes from their hearts and minds, and that's the role of God. Goswami, like many of us, including myself, find in God an essentially orderly emanator. Quantum activism brings us to the challenge that an age of enlightenment is always called to do, integrate, synthesize, and renew how we see ourselves in the universe as well as our relationship to God. This means leaving a materialist worldview and adopting the one our modern laboratories, like our mystics of every age, tell us exist. God and we are one. We are spiritual beings having a material experience, but ultimately we are spiritual beings with the ability to elevate matter, and our consciousness and heart is the interface where God and man and all life interact. As Goswami posits in his book, the ground of being is not matter, it is consciousness. Now is the time, he points out, to wake up to our non-locality, I add our subtle bodies and the eternal soul wisdom we are called to use. Dr. Goswami, thank you so much for joining us again on 21st Century Radio. You're very welcome, Joe. I loved the introduction. Well, thank you so much. You know, after reading your book, I felt you deserved a formal introduction. <laughs> so, well, there were a few things after reading this book I didn't realize, even you and I, though you and I have talked a number of times in the last 15 years. Tell us how your father's life as a guru informed you as a man? Well, um, when I was very young and uh, he told me the stories of Upanishad and sometimes even taught me how to recite a few of the verses, um, I hardly, um, of course, I enjoyed those uh, situations very much because I loved him. But um, it, it did not create any lasting impression, I'm afraid. Uh, at 14, I became openly rebellious and became a materialist. Um, my, my intention was to follow the great uh, Newton and Einstein to um, immortality in physics research. So um, that changed, though, uh, at a midlife uh, situation that arose uh, when I was 37, and then I remembered uh, my father. He came back to me in a dream. Oh, tell, tell us I about was, that. <laughs> I was dreaming, and uh, I saw my father uh, carrying a snake. And, and, and he threw me, uh, threw the snake to me, and I caught it. Uh, then later, uh, I was analyzing this dream with a dream analyzer, and he pointed out that snake is supposed to be the symbol of transformation, and he was um, passing on the uh, practice of transformation to me. 
that was his his goal of life, and so it is mine now. <laughs> it's a it's a beautiful story, you know. And so often we were talking before you joined us about you know these times of instability and insecurity and crisis, and and that adaptability is built not only in preparation but in humility. And I think it's so interesting because you point to some of these things. Your book, by the way, is just a wonderful addition, and it's apparent it comes from decades of work in both spiritual teachings and scientific exploration. Look, why don't we start um, at where you do? People often divide themselves into two camps. There's a materialist worldview, which I'd like you to describe because you said you became a materialist and then you changed, and a quantum worldview, which obviously you go around the world teaching about. So let's describe those two worldviews. Well, the materialist worldview is um, pretty obvious. Uh, the name suggests it. Everything is made of matter. Uh, everything is made of elementary particles at the base level. Uh, it's a reductionist worldview because material objects are uh, can be reduced to smaller and smaller objects. So the idea is that elementary particles make atoms, make molecules, make cells, Cells make the brain, and brain makes all of our subjective uh, experiences, including consciousness or God. In this view, um, in fact, uh, neurophysiologists are proud to point out that they have now found a spot in the midbrain. If you excite this spot, you have spiritual experiences. So there are several books out uh, suggesting that uh, this is the God spot. Uh, Of course, jokingly, I call it the G spot, but but that's... uh, that's a, um, that aside, uh, it, it, it's not an unimportant discovery, but, but they identify uh, everything about God with this spot in the brain, and that is, that is the materialist worldview. So ethics and meaning are important only to the extent that they have survival values, that, that may have survival values, and so they must have a reason uh, through Darwinian evolution, and so must have consciousness. Um, although um, materialists unabashedly suggest that um, even the survival value may be in question because, uh, you know, in any obvious kind of way, uh, there is, it's hard to see. So enough about this, this view. But, but I'll point out that material interactions are only causal um, source, source of cause in this view, we call it upward causation model because cause rises upward from the elementary particles, and in particular, all of our uh, causation at our level, at the level that we live, uh, that causation is a secondary phenomenon of material interaction. And then in other he- words, there is no tooth in it. Right. And, and how would a quantum view differ from that? A quantum view, on the other hand, begins um, with, just the very fact that uh, we are using quantum physics. In quantum physics, objects are not determined things, determined by the material interactions. Instead, uh, objects are possibilities. Uh, The possibilities are, of course, determined by material interactions, but the question of uh, how the possibilities become actualized as actual experiences of someone's consciousness, that is the mystery. When we look, we don't see possibilities. We see actual events, or we see, instead of waves of possibilities, an electron being smeared all over the room, for example, we see the electron localized in a particular Geiger counter. So this mystery of what is in our seeing, uh, uh, what is the magic of that, that converts the possibility into actuality, 
that mystery eventually leads to the conclusion, unequivocal conclusion, the only logically paradox-free conclusion, that consciousness is the ground of being, and the material possibilities that quantum physics posits are possibilities of consciousness itself. Therefore, consciousness can choose among these possibilities, making into an actual event of experience, and this conscious choice now is a causal event and uh, a source of causality, and this is the causality that I call downward causation, because the causation is applied not from our individual, local, uh, individualized choice of, uh, uh, individualized uh, state of consciousness that we call the ego. Instead, it is from a higher state of consciousness, a state in which you mentioned non-locality, in which a non-local connection, signal-free connection, is found that it encompasses all sentient beings. One, we've spent a lot of time over the last 20 years interviewing many people in the new paradigm movement of consciousness. And when we look at the fields of remote viewing or telepathy or lucid dreaming, one can demonstrate that this phenomenon is so, that consciousness links us. I mean, recently um, during an interview Russell Targ joined us, and he proceeded to tell us about um, a time when people came to him, and he had forgotten to bring an object that he would have his audience view. And so he's sitting here telling the story, and I'm viewing the object that isn't there, that he told them wasn't there, but he held in his mind at an event that happened two years ago or whatever it was. And I got the drawing. I didn't name it properly, but I drew it properly. Yeah. And and so that's, that's a demonstration of non-locality. Now, one of the things you mentioned mentioned in your book, and I want to bring it up because I think people are um, really struggling sometimes with, I had mentioned that a diminishment in life, a change, a, a loss of a job, illness, etc., whatever happens is for an eventual elevation. And you mentioned that all the things going on in the world right now, whether it's terrorism, global warming, healthcare costs, are symptoms of the same movement in a shift of consciousness that is called for. Explain for us why and what this is relative to your work in quantum physics and the fact that consciousness is the field we all are in. Yes, this, this is a very important uh, question. So I, I, I think that one has to recognize two things here. One is, uh, first of all, that we make mistakes. Um, we have aberrant behavior, and that, of course, is what happened when you adopted a um, materialistic worldview for the last 50 years or so, um, without, without really bothering to verify all of its tenets. We were too optimistic by the premature declaration of success in such events as the progress in particle physics, progress in molecular biology, progress in computer science, undeniable progress, but we got carried away. Um, so the society started following the dictum of materialist science, gave up values, and, you know, witnessed the situation. You mentioned them already, terrorism. Um, economic meltdown is another grave situation, probably graver than anything that, that we have seen so far. Um, uh, and that, that is the kind of thing that you get when we give up on spiritual values because of our wrong metaphysics. But having said that, one has to remember that this too is within consciousness. And therefore, um, one has to see uh, the hand of consciousness or evolution of consciousness in even this. 
And when one does that, the good thing about it is that we recognize that unless a crisis arises, human beings at this stage of our evolution uh, are not able to bring real change. Now we want real change because we know that without real change, we have not a chance of recovering from these phenomena which materialism just cannot solve. We have to change our uh, materialist ways, our economy runs. We have to change our materialist ways that we are, are destroying the ecosystem. And, of course, we have to understand the basis of terrorism, why that is, and what is the best way of, of uh, dealing with it. Well, when we look at and and so what we require is a very healthy, creative process, which you point out is essential to a healthy human. And for some, you know, it's how they dress, for others, how they cook. But for us as a whole global community now, it's it's how we are in the world and what our purpose is. I've often said, you know, if businesses understood that service is the reason they're in business, not just to make money, we would see a different kind of economy. How does non-locality help us as individuals, though, enhance our relationship with the creator? Because if if you have a perspective that might be different, how, how has God, for instance, played a major role in human development, and how does this quantum view of God differ from perhaps some of the traditional religious teachings that perhaps we bump up against? Well, um, the, the, the traditional religious teachings are fine, except that they are too subtle and, and expressed in too obscure a language for common people to understand. For example, take the case of non-locality. It's not that the ancient great teachers, such as Jesus or Buddha, did not understand it. They did, but they expressed this in the language that uh, consciousness is transcendent, God is transcendent. What does transcendence mean? I mean, that's a word that calls for uh, a very, very subtle um, intelligence. But ordinary teachers would uh, more or less make the uh, point that God is outside of space-time. But that uh, immediately leaves God a dual agent outside of us. And this dualistic picture of God, you know, God is somebody in the outer space uh, sitting on a throne, that's where this picture uh, comes from a misunderstanding of the word transcendent. With quantum non-localities, it is clear. Not only it is uh, something that we can express as outside of space and time, but we make it very clear that it is signalless communication by virtue of the fact that God is everything. There is no separateness between God and a human being. Now, that is a very uh, difficult but also um, extremely rewarding concept to understand. If you appreciate that God is not separate from you, God is not separate from us, our, not only our worldview changes, we become empowered. Because if we realize that we have God potential, every one of us, and we can realize this God potential with spiritual work, who in their right mind would not engage in what we call spiritual work and usually rejected from our um, mode of activity in regular life. And of course, all the teachings will tell you, what do you take when you cross over out of your body? You take your good works, your word, your thought, your deed. You don't take your house. You don't take your car. You don't take your nice clothes. 
And, uh, and that is not enough motivation for today's people because we have become so convinced that you, you don't survive after you, uh, after you pass away. And it's so, so interesting because that's really a minority point of view. I mean, the majority of the billions of people on this planet actually believe in reincarnation, but those with the most power in Western world technology perhaps don't. Yeah, but you know, so I must also be, you know, um, unfortunately have to ad- admit that yes, people do believe in reincarnation. Billions of people, you are quite right, uh, two thirds of all the six billion, I think. But even so, their their beliefs in um, God, reincarnation, and stuff like this is a bit of wishy washy. Because uh-huh. the thing is that the you know this dualistic thinking. Yeah exists even though if uh, you can believe in reincarnation, but as a dual soul and, right. and, and you know, all that stuff. And what that does is that it, it, it takes away the sense of responsibility. Mm-hmm. If, on the other hand, if we could understand that what we pass on to the next incarnation is not our melodrama, but what we learn from this incarnation, then we would be careful about learning something good. <laughs> exactly. Well, look, we're going to take a little break, Amit, and then we'll be back. If you're just joining us, I'm so glad you have Dr. Amit Goswami, G-O-S-W-A-M-I is our guest. We'll be back after these messages. Hello, I'm Bill Sweet of Spindrift Research. Our website is spindriftresearch.org. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Zoe Hieronymus, and we're looking forward to having more of you open-minded people listen in. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Our guest is Dr. Amit Goswami. You can read Amit's book at, well, you can go buy it. Firstly, God is Not Dead, What Quantum Physics Tells Us About Our Origins and How We Should Live, a Hampton Roads 2008 release. Amit, I want to come to some of the um, hardcore elements of your work that are really so encompassing and um, so beautiful. You, you talk about a number of things being archetypes, not only love, but you also talk about the way we respond to it and how our immune system actually has something to do with union or not union. Can you explain this to us? Well, um, it has to do very much with the concept of morphogenetic field that Rupert Sheldrake introduced in biology in 1981. He showed that the uh, building of organs, how biological form is built, requires a particular field that must be non-material because it has to be non-local. The way the organs are built, it is not difficult to see that they have to be non-local because the question arises, how does a cell know where it is in the body? Because it has to perform depending on where it is on the body. But how does the cell know? Uh, To get that information for the cell requires a non-local field of some sort. So Sheldrake proposed that uh, morphogenetic fields must be non-local and therefore non-physical because in the material domain, nothing can have the non-local characteristic. It's just not permitted by material interaction. And, and one of the examples I recall, he a simple one, correct me if I'm wrong, about a morphogenetic field, if a group of people do something, finally it makes it very easy for the next group of people to come do it, not because they saw the first group of people do it, but because it's conditioned the field of non-locality. Right. That, that, that field is... is carried through the because any any change any learning is in the gets in the brain as a brain circuit and the brain circuits are made by morphogenetic fields and therefore the morphogenetic fields are modified 
and the idea is that the uh, next group of people would inherit those modified morphogenetic fields. So in this way, a learning can be transferred uh, without the help of the genes from one generation to another generation. This is a very, very important uh, suggestion that Sheldrake made. With quantum physics, you can solve the problem of dualism that it still does. A materialist would say that how does a morphogenetic field interact with the material, but that is solved in uh, the quantum theory by recognizing that both morphogenetic fields and the physical body are possibilities within consciousness, and therefore consciousness chooses from these possibility waves to make the actual events of experience in which a morphogenetic field is mapped, is represented in the physical body as organs. Okay? It's, it's an ama- I mean, Rudolf Steiner often talked about building organs from one lifetime to another, and you know, people would look at it as some sort of weird science, but I think your work and others in quantum physics are beginning to um, help us, I guess, as you point out, better appreciate this very refined esoteric language into something more explicit. I mean, I think this notion um, that you talk about of evidence of a downward causation and evidence of upward causation is very much in keeping with what I study in Kabbalah, that if if you pray as an example to the creator for something, for one thing, you create a vessel. And once you do something or praise God, um, then it creates an opportunity for that manifestation. So for somebody in the listening audience who's going, I don't understand what you two are talking about. Can you give us an example of how prayer is a non-local event when one gets what one has prayed about? Well, um, how does prayer work? Prayer uh, starts as an intention of uh, having something fulfilled by a power that is beyond the power of my ego. So this is why we start with an intention, but at the next level we recognize that it's not within the ego's power to um, make this uh, intention come true. Right. Let's just say it's somebody praying for the restoration of a loved one's health. Specifically with health, uh, it it is extremely important because prayer really does work. We have evidence for it now, scientific evidence. So we start with, uh, uh, he starts with praying for the wife's health. And uh, at the next level, um, the prayer must become, the intention must become an intention for the greater good. So one can do it in a variety of ways. One can say that, well, let all people whose wives are sick, let all, all of them, all of the wives be healed. So then, then the intention becomes one of greater good. After that, it begins the prayer. Because since my ego cannot do it, let it be God's will, let it be the will of one consciousness, non-local quantum consciousness, to fulfill this intention. This is the prayer part. But all prayer, as prayer groups know very well, must end in silence. So there is always a silence part that follows the prayer. So one, two, three, four. First, very individual, egoic intention. Second, make the intention, intention for greater good. Third, surrender to the will of the whole, God, quantum consciousness, whatever you want to call it. Fourth, silence. And it works. It's very interesting. I know those studies at the Spindrift Institute, they discovered in the same thing, whether it was mung beans or people, when they didn't pray for a particular outcome, but simply for 
the highest good to be restored, it had the greatest effect. Very much what you're saying. So, so when we look at ourselves as individuals and sometimes we feel ourselves as separate and sometimes in those moments of joy and unity, we feel ourselves as one with the world. What is this next big step that humanity needs to take and how is it that the quantum physics work that you and others are doing might actually help us find that place, I would say, in our heart that is inclusive? Yes, I think the next next great place that you have to do is to learn how to open our heart. You know, the question that you asked, uh, immune, immune system and morphogenetic fields, all that comes in because the uh, heart chakra. The heart chakra has the uh, immune, a very important component of the immune system, the thymus gland. And so if we, this, uh, whenever we put our attention to the heart chakra, you know, in the region of where the physical heart is, what happens is very unique. Immune system distinguishes me and not me. So if I can uh, subjugate momentarily even the action of the immune system that excludes, for good reason, it, it has to be exclusion because otherwise bacteria, etc., would constantly get to our body. And would you say that? Would could you say that our immune system is sometimes our impulse in our behavior to exclusivity because yeah. we're not translating that this is its purpose but not ours? Uh, well, it is indeed a limitation on our behavior. Uh, that that that. Uh, may be responsible for much of our exclusion, but brain does it too, because brain has those negative emotional brain circuits coming uh, as instincts. So it's not entirely the immune system that is responsible. But this idea of uh, if we can subjugate the immune system even momentarily by a contract between the morphogenetic fields, that's where the real subjugation comes. If we can let suspend, just suspend that uh, me and not my judgment, momentarily, immediately, another person's morphogenetic field become acceptable to us. And, of course, that happens sometimes between people of opposite sex because of romantic inclination. That is what romance is about. And when immune system is, 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 uh, is relaxed, then, of course, people become mad for each other for physical reunion. But that only for the physical part. Um, the real uh, challenge, of course, is without the physical part, uh, how am I going to get this me not me suspended, this exclusivity suspended, uh, and especially for prolonged periods of time. We also have moments of this love that we feel in the uh, energy of the heart. Moments of it we feel uh, almost every day. I mean, almost everybody uh, feels that. I hope they feel that. But... Um, how to make it for prolonged periods of time, and how to make it with everyone. This is the challenge. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if President Obama sits down with uh, the president of Iran and they could really talk with open heart? I mean, Obama already has taken the first step saying that, okay, I'll meet with him. But, but if they could meet with open heart, both of them, I mean, that would give such a greater opportunity for making the probabilities, possibilities, enhanced in probabilities to manifest that in that way peace could come on this very earth in this very situation of 21st century within just a matter of a moment of uh, 
decision. I mean, it, it just could happen right then and there between two people talking to each other. Well, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I mean, individuals experience this, but oftentimes the the culture of change forbids that quantum leap. I mean, it's almost as though the world is being asked to take a quantum leap in development, which we do need before we destroy ourselves and each other. Especially when the steps are very clear. It is very clear that we have to go through this quantum leap. You know, this was what is not very clear in the ancient teachings because they didn't have uh, concepts like we have today. They didn't have experimental data supporting those concepts. And, and specifically, they didn't have the way to reach this uh, quantum leap. For example, we know now from, for the work of, uh, from the work of creativity researchers that you have to go through a creative process which alternates between do and be. Uh, I call it uh, somewhat jokingly, do be, do be, do lifestyle. If you adopt that, then only uh, creative insights if quantum leaps take place. I mean, they're, they're not the result of just uh, accidents, you know, just chance events. They're the result of a protracted creative process that takes some time, takes a lot of intention, takes a lot of hard work, but takes a lot of relaxation also. Well, it's interesting. In my studies in Kabbalah, I found that the seven spheres or sephirot of the tree of life, that the first one shows us that the seed of life is love, meaning so if you're going to create something, the very first thing is love. And then you have to discern what do you keep and what don't you keep. And then there's a very orderly progression. So I, I don't want, I mean, the book, for those who are interested in physics, I really encourage you to read this. For those who have a love of God, I really encourage you to read this. And for those that don't, I encourage you to read it. But rather than spending too much time in the physics of things, I mean, that's why I'm sort of drawing you into the more applied, how does all of this change? You, for instance, in your epilogue, you have Approaching God and Spirituality Through Science. It's an appeal to young scientists. Explain that for us. Well, um, you know, uh, the main problem today of real paradigm shift is the old fogies of science, the, the ones who developed the materialist paradigm, are so entrenched in their belief system that we, we cannot really hope that they will any time uh, change their minds. Um, in fact, you know, I recently came across a quotation from the uh, famous novelist Upton Sinclair, who said that if uh, people make their living not understanding something, we can uh, really not expect them to understand that new concept. So, you know, these people have made their, make their living by becoming atheists, not understanding God, and we cannot really expect to change their minds and all of a sudden understand God, understand what we are trying to say, what quantum physics is trying to tell them. Our hope is the young people. They have opener minds, and they do have uh, instinct uh, that, that the present science is not doing everything right, notice these problems that we already mentioned, and therefore they really are anxious to solve the problems of 21st century, and they are anxious to find new systems of thinking that work. And here is then uh, enormous opportunity that quantum physics is giving us. Schrodinger equation, the quantum mathematical equation uh, that uh, Heisenberg and Schrodinger discovered in 1925-26, that really is an equation that points to the existence of God. There is no question about it. Its proper interpretation requires the philosophical assumption that consciousness is the ground of all being. 
So if young people could understand this, and anybody reading any of my books can go through the process and have a quantum leap, it is almost guaranteed. Uh, anybody with real pure intention goes through the argument solidly and not compromise until they make the breakthrough, there will be a quantum leap of understanding that consciousness is the ground of all being. I, I've told the story that when I interviewed Joe Allen, one of the Apollo 7 astronauts who was responsible, I believe that was his name, I've interviewed so many people in my life. I asked him, well, did the astronauts ever talk about consciousness being the fuel for moving the planet? Meaning, was there ever discussion about that our consciousness at some point would be able to steer the Earth? And I was really surprised when he said to me, yes, they do talk about things like that. So there really are people, and I think Edgar Mitchell and others who come out of the NASA program have done so much for our understanding. Yes, they have, because uh, Edgar Mitchell, for example, had a a tremendously beautiful non-local experience. Non-locality of consciousness is not just words to him. He had the realization. He just recognized the non-locality when he was looking at the Earth from outer space. Right. No, but, well, sometimes it takes getting out of our own lives <laughs> to, to have the went out of the box, didn't yes. so, But anybody can go out of the box that our mind creates. And so this is why my appeal to young people, and I also, you know, if you have noticed, they make the same appeal to all young people who are into Christianity. I mean, Christianity is a great religion. It has some failures, but the failures are entirely of the administrative nature. The way Christianity has been popularized, um, it is a fundamentally a devotional religion, and the powers that be never allowed the Guiana wisdom tradition to come alive in Christianity. Although there are very wise people, Meister Eckhart, Teresa of Avila, for example, but their work is not emphasized. What is emphasized is this popularized devotional um, uh, ritualistic religion, which uh, is good, still good in, in, in some ways, but people have outgrown it also in some ways. People live in much more sophisticated era, which requires knowledge, such as science. And uh, the Western philosophical tradition, of course, failed to reach conclusions of transcendence because uh, they didn't practice. Uh, quantum physics is now the culmination of all that Western uh, philosophy, and uh, in the final reckoning, the West has gotten it. I mean, we really now have, with quantum physics, a, f- a philosophy of wisdom within uh, the Western tradition. And this should be welcomed by the West- by Christian Church and uh, should be compulsory reading for every. Uh, young person in the, in the Christian church. Well, look, when we when we come back, we can pick up there, and uh, we have to take a little break. I also want to be sure to talk about dreams, because dream life is an important aspect of non-locality, and it's where most people experience it. They just might not call it that. Our guest is Dr. Amit Goswami. This is 21st Century Radio, and I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. We'll be back after this. Hi, this is Robert Sachs. I'm the author of Tibetan Ayurveda and the book Rebirth in the Pure Land. You're now listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. She's a wonderful interviewer, and you're going to really enjoy whatever you're going to be hearing with her. If you want to find out more about me, you can go to my website, www.robertsachs.net or diamondwayayurveda.com. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Um, Dr. Goswami, you know, in Hebrew, we say Amit. Do you say Amit or Amit? 
Uh, well, I suppose because in Bengali, uh, which is my mother language, there is no accent. So it is uh, something that is very difficult for me even to pronounce today because I live in an accented language world. Uh, so either one goes fine. I just want to both. <laughs> okay. Well, I thought maybe I was going to learn. <laughs> you know, what would you prefer after all these years have finally undawned on me that I go bef- between Amit and Amit? <laughs> But I want to come back to some of the beautiful things you've written. I mean, it's not a subject that you can really just do in these sound bites, which talk radio is predisposed to. But I'd like you to talk a little bit about the new classification of dreams, because even in that, which is an extraordinarily refined presentation you've made, it shows people, I think, that we're talking about something that's very real and they can test it out in their own life. Yes, I, I, I'm very, very uh, pleased with the way the dream research went, which was done with, uh, mainly done with a, a very talented young uh, psychologist named Laura Simpkinson. Um, this, this, this work originally was just motivated to do a research for her master's thesis and we're going to study the um, dreams in a dream group at the Institute of Noetic Sciences at that time in Sausalito, now in Petaluma, California. Um, so, but, but really what it amounted to when we understood uh, properly, because, you know, in psychology of Jung, uh, dreams are already uh, understood as something that tells us about our meaning life. And that is because uh, dreams are internal. Uh, they don't, in dream reality, we don't uh, experience uh, the external world. So consciousness collapses uh, possibilities into actual events of internal. And Jung and psychologists mainly thought that they correspond to the mind, mental realm, because mind processes meaning. But in our theory, we have um, five different bodies, physical, um, vital body, vital energies uh, of feeling, and then mental energies of meaning, uh, and then supramental energies of archetypes, values, uh, love, beauty, justice, all those, and then bliss body, uh, just pure bliss, uh, consciousness as a whole, wholeness. So these five bodies, and we started looking for evidence that there must be more than just meaning, there must be within dreams um, some very physical dreams and uh, emotional dreams and uh, then supramental dreams and then uh, dreams of enlightened bliss. And indeed, uh, we found evidence for every one of them. Two, two years, for two years, we did this dream group and we also collected our own dreams. Uh, Laura analyzed some of her own, I analyzed some of my own. And we found a very good evidence for a five-fold classification. And our assumption then was that each body w- uh, dominates in uh, any dream. One or more of the bodies will dominate and will have, uh, therefore, a five-fold classification possible. Well, and body. as you mentioned earlier in the program, you had this major change in life when you had a dream about your father 
who threw you the snake, which you caught, and it was like this transfer. And so oftentimes people have dreams and it changes their life, whether it's a premonitory dream or a telepathic dream. And I've actually hosted shows for people to call in about their own experience of dreaming the future or dreaming not to go somewhere or dreaming to do something. You talk about the creative process, and I'd like to close the evening with that because I think that's what we're all called to do in this day and age, actually, we're all called to do in every incarnation, but sometimes we become more aware of what it means. You've described, and you mentioned them in chapter six and 13, that there are four stages in the creative process um, that have been codified by, I think it was Graham Wallace you cited in 1926, but it's important because it talks then about what's going on in non-locality. Because the, the first one, uh, preparation, is well understood by everyone. But the starting from the second, which second one is unconscious processing. But how do you process in the unconscious? If you stay on to your local body, the local memories, then all you process is the past. You never process anything, any poss- creative possibilities of the future. So one has to learn how to create possibilities that go beyond our local memories and get into the non-local aspect of things, which, which means that we have to create uh, conflicts, newness in our life, and not resolve them with the known. But, that and way, that's really important. Don't go too far beyond that, because that's, that was one of the things I had suggested last hour was, you know, when things are uncertain, you have to have humility. There absolutely. has to be preparation, but you have to become comfortable with not knowing. And our culture isn't like that. You know, I joke we're going to have drive-through brain surgery pretty soon. How how can you talk to people who aren't comfortable with not knowing that not knowing is a part of incubation? Like when a woman is carrying a child in her womb, she doesn't know what the child's going to look like. She doesn't know, and she has to be comfortable with it. And this comfort with not knowing, comfort with anxiety that comes from unresolved conflicts is the key to creativity. People who can do it, learn to do it, learn to hold the anxiety, they become creative. Others, unfortunately, are not taking advantage of the fact that anybody can learn this. It's just a matter of relaxing. This is what meditation really can help. I suggest this uh, meditation giving relaxation response to anyone who wants to be creative. Mm-hmm. And, and then, then the quantum leaps come. You if said then you come. get insight, and yeah, then ultimately you manifest something. And you manifest something. It's, it's quite simple, and it's quite dependable. Anybody who follows through this with the ideas that are expressed in um, most of my books has at least one chapter on creativity. I, I cannot write a book without writing something about creativity, because it's so important part of how to become, how to recognize and realize God's downward causation in our own life and thereby transform ourselves from unhappiness to happiness. Absolutely. And and I think when we look around the world and people understand, it's almost I joke that our technologies are showing us talents that we have that are non-technological, meaning, you know, fax machine, they're trying to do teleportation. Well, ESP shows us and this non-local ability, non-local consciousness of remote viewing is already showing us what the internet has instrumented physically yes and and we can we can go further with the internet i mean internet is, is not to be downgraded it's great the local uh, connection now should be used as an as a trigger to give us further non-local connection with people because mm-hmm. then we not only can transact but we can also transform 
transaction is good, but transformation is even greater because life becomes full with satisfaction, love, and wholeness. What more can one want? Well, absolutely true, which is why I'm so glad part of your work has been to focus not only the explanation of what physics is showing us about this power of consciousness, but even in addition to it, the, this, the significance of the heart. So in closing, how does the heart inform the mind? Well, um, as you said, non-locality. So what happens in the, with the mind, with the brain, uh, mind which is already uh, represented in the brain as memories of the past, what we have is negativity, negative emotions and stuff. When the heart becomes involved, non-locally, we start experiencing love, love which is universal. And then we make brain circuits, bring them into locality as brain circuits. But we have these brain circuits available, so whenever a stimulus arises that gives us negativity, we can also bring our positive emotional brain circuit to balance it. And it is that balancing that we need in our society and culture today to overcome such things as violence, such things as global warming and the calamity and the blaming that comes with it, politics, economic downturn, all of this we need to balance our negativity that arises naturally with positive emotions that can arise and we can make brain circuits with our open heart. So open heart must mean more than open heart surgery. Open heart must mean being open to love and have experiences of love so deep that we learn to make brain circuits of love. Well, and I really believe that that is this age. That is actually what the earth is being called to do, which is come to loving consciousness, which means to come to union. So when President Obama, I mentioned at the start of our program, included nonbelievers and Christians and others are having some big fit about it, I, I just don't see it. I think, thank God, finally, you know, a president <laughs> who understands that it's either going to be all of us together or none of us. <laughs> And that's really the bottom line. Well, Dr. Goswami, you do a beautiful job of bringing both the laboratory of life and the laboratory of spirit and science together. And I personally want to thank you for having made such a great contribution in my own education. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. Dr. Amit Goswami's book, God is Not Dead, What Quantum Physics Tells Us About Our Origins and How We Should Live, a Hampton Roads book. Go to www.amitgoswami, A-M-I-T, Goswami, G-O-S-W-A-M-I dot org. And that's the show. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington, and I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus.